Hello and welcome to Cinephil's Take 19. Uh, this week, um, we're uh, continuing our Samurai series of films um, with uh, Kurosawa's 1961 uh, film Yojimbo uh, and uh, Fistful of Dollars from Sergio Leone um, just a couple years later. And there's a whole big story about that, but... Uh, it's good to talk to you again, Rob, and I'm looking forward to, to continuing to discuss Samurai, uh, the uh, lone wolf character, um, and um, uh, a bit of philosophy, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, it, hi again, uh, David, and to our audience. It's lovely how uh, themes just emerge organically uh, with this uh, podcast. It's it's great. Uh, now we're on the samurai and it's fun. I love exploring this. Um, so you mentioned uh, a bit about uh, the whole story behind Yojimbo and Fistful of Dollars. Um, yeah, and there was, I do know a little bit about this story, but only a little bit. I know really more that there is a story. Um, I was wondering if maybe we should start off with that. Yeah, let, let's let's start with that um, because there's a lot of I've been doing a lot of reading about it and how how the two are uh, connected, um, and it's really quite interesting. Um, you know, Yojimbo comes out in 1961. Uh, Kurosawa is already uh, you know a well established director, got, um, and um, uh, his films are known in the U.S. Um, and they make it to places like New York City and L.A. and San Francisco and other um, big um, um, cities where there are good movie houses. Um, it turns out um, at at, um, at the time that came out, um, and I'm this is something I, I found only after wading through uh, a bunch of sources. Um, Clint Eastwood, who was at the time starring in a Rawhide, I believe, on TV, um, was. Uh, you know, he's a film buff, obviously, and he's he's now quite accomplished director uh, in his own right. Um, watched this film and thought, geez, this would make a, a good uh, cowboy film, actually. Um, and uh, apparently a similar th- thing was happening in um, in Italy. So Sergio Leone uh, uh, also sees the film Um acknowledged he had seen the film and thought, yeah, we could remake this as a cowboy film, uh, uh, as a Western. Um, and, and this is actually very fortunate. So although, um, and the problem is, uh, Leon never credits uh, Kurosawa's Yojimbo when he releases his uh, fistful of dollars, having cast, um, Clint Eastwood in his breakthrough, um, Western, uh, movie role, uh, in, in the, you know, in this character of the man with no name. Uh, so, of course, uh, Leon ends up in court. Uh, Kurosawa uh, says, it's a, you know, I, I love the film. This Full of Dollars was a great film, um, but it was my film, um, which is more or less true. There was there was so many features of it that he uh, recapitulates um, in the in but in a different setting, essentially. Um, so they settled uh, the lawsuit for the equivalent of $100,000 uh, in our, our current uh, money. Um, and um, yeah, uh, and the rest is history. Uh, Leon goes on to make um, two prequels to Fistful of Dollars, which we now call the Dollars Trilogy. Um, and each of those is also excellent films in their own right. I think um, 
that uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly is is the most famous and actually his best of of that series. I'm not I'm not sure if that's a, a widely agreed upon um, a ranking, but um, that's my own view. But I chose Fistful of Dollars because it it and Yojimbo Yo have the same DNA. Absolutely. And that's a great, great uh, for you to fill me in on the details of uh, that story, uh, because like watching the movies, which I've seen before, but never back to back. Uh, so rewatching them, uh, it's obvious that th- it's the same story, you know, uh, just uh, transposed uh, locations. And uh, so it was uh, that's a. Uh, Really good to know. And, uh, well, swords, for the most part, uh, replacing guns in Fistful of Dollars, or or being replaced by guns in Fistful of Dollars, um, which is, uh, I suppose, uh, something interesting about uh, the samurai culture and the use of firearms in uh, feudal Japan and the adoption of them. Uh, yeah. yeah, so there is a gun that makes its appearance in Yojimbo, and that... You know, that's surprising in retrospect. Um, it takes place in the latter part of the 19th century in feudal Japan. Um, and it's it that I thought was something we might discuss because this is more or less the waning days of samurai culture um, that are being represented. Um, and in, in Fistful of Dollars, we have the, you know, the the ascendance of the, the frontier Western um, culture. So those are those are two interesting diametrically opposed phenomena in each of these um, tellings of that story, um, and I think they have different effects on the way the story um, um, reaches us or impacts us. But maybe we can, yeah, maybe we can start by talking a bit about Yojimbo. All right, sounds good. So yeah, like first of all, uh, I think this movie is excellent. Uh, which, uh, but. Excellent, but sort of a confection, like uh, in in so far as I don't think it's uh, the profound Kurosawa. I think right. it's, I think it's uh, more the entertainer Kurosawa uh, presenting his uh, in this uh, story. Um, and as uh, with Mufuni, I, I hope I get that right. Um, the Your mean guess is as good as mine. I think that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I'm sorry if I've messed up his Mifun. Yeah, let's do show Mifun. Yeah, because I look uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, he was he played this uh, role with a certain uh, comic panache in uh, mm-hmm. deadpan comic panache in various scenes, and that was uh, nice. Um, it's funny, which. I didn't see a lot of in uh, Eastwood's portrayal, so I thought that was unique. Um, other things uh, that made this movie um, really interesting to me, right at the start, how uh, there was the all the Mifuni's character uh, going to the farmer and finding out that his son had been had gone to the city to become a hired gun uh, a hired samurai right and uh like that as i thought that was uh unique how that paid off far later in the story when uh mifun's character encounters that uh that guy and he's like yeah just get home before i kill you uh he made the wrong choice and so i thought that was wonderful i thought the structure 
of this movie, the plot of it, even though I said it was a confection, it is a very, it's a pretty tight plot. Like you're never wondering what's going on here or what the motivations are. Uh, It's a, and the action pieces are uh, wonderful. Uh, So yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was uh, set, I guess, in the late Edo period, uh, around 1860. Mm -hmm in japan and um as like as far as i know and this isn't saying much um the japan basically adopted uh firearms about a hundred years prior to this uh they first encountered firearms and they were used uh in um the Korean, uh, the Japanese uh, invasions of Korea during the Indian Wars. And so, uh, but prior to their adoption of firearms, uh, they had essentially banned them uh, or attempted to suppress them from the culture, like going around and killing all the people who knew how to make guns. Um, Interesting. Yeah, like, so there was like it wasn't like oh here's a new technology let uh, which will change our culture let's adopt it. It was much more like okay here's a technology which will challenge the existing order and let's do our best to suppress it for a very mm-hmm. long time. And, yeah, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, and I like I I. I just sort of heard this uh, like I'm like, so don't take it as absolute fact. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was like on a tour of a palace in Korea. And it's like, well, yes, here's where uh, the king turned down guns. And then they went to Japan. Uh, So that was sort of it. Um, How I came across that. Um, I did go. I really did love. uh, Sanjuro's character in this movie. Um, and I want to point so out... San, Sanjuro is the name of the character that yeah, he adopted. Right, yeah, Mifun's right. character was... Uh, Sanjuro was his name. And uh, he had made his appearance, I believe, in a whole bunch of other movies uh, prior to this. as the uh, And after. So yeah. Mifun kind of makes a living off of playing this character. Um, and and here's a, a little known um, uh, sort of nod to it, uh, probably well known, actually. So um, John Belushi in his character, uh, the uh, playing a samurai, you know, the you've seen the Saturday Night Live, John Belushi's samurai character, I suppose. Actually, I haven't. Uh, you, you have not. Okay, it's a rather famous um, bit. He is basically he dons the same costume in it and acknowledge that he was playing the Mifun uh, samurai character from various movies. So, okay, yeah, uh, but like I think there was like the samurai trilogy before this movie, mm-hmm. um, which was released in Japan with Mifun essentially playing a guy named Sanjuro. Uh, yeah. So I assume it was uh, the same character. Um, I believe so. He this this becomes a you know as yeah. much as Clint Eastwood is the man with no name and you know numerous other um, uh, 
cowboys uh, in in a number of other films in, outside of Sergio Leone's. Um, Mifun kind of adopts this persona. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. I thought, um, well, shall we talk directly about the samurai archetype as it is, or the samurai character as it is presented by Mifun here? Uh, this seems to be... Um, something you've you said you're fascinated with so uh perhaps you you might tell us a, a bit about it why well, well, yeah sure so i think um that this particular character again coming at the sort of the the um the end of an era for samurai he is a ronin in this movie and he's kind of he's wandering you know looking around for his ne- next gig um with no particular alliances or allegiances. Um, but he comes to town uh, with one particular interest, and that is to make a living. And he notices that there's this, he, he learns as soon as he's there, that there's this ongoing war uh, between these two factions in the town. And I thought that was interesting too, because it we had talked in a previous episode about, uh, um, you know, the... Uh, the notion of uh, the ending of some era, right? When we were talking about Ghost Dog, that was also a theme. And it seems like something is going on in this town that there has, there's obviously a lack of leadership. The, you know, the local government is, I guess, non-existent. Um, and you have like the gambling faction versus the, what is it? The silk faction, the, yes. um, yeah, yeah. So, which is an interesting juxtaposition of factions, because gambling is obviously something that is frowned upon and, um, you know, uh, I guess illegal. Um, but it, it's certainly, it's destroying the youth, just like Poole did in, uh, you know, uh, River City. Um, and uh, it's taken people away from the silk trade, which is where a, a respectable person makes their living, I suppose. Um, so there is this, you know, uh, this uh, angst about, ending of eras there's this angst about a new generation and you have this guy who wanders the i guess it's sort of a wasteland we don't see much of what's out there except this little town um and he comes in with you know no particular um sense of a moral compass um with the you know interest of making money so he sets these two factions against each other uh and goes to the highest bidder and and that seems to me to mark an interesting cultural uh, turning point in the world in, you know, the uh, post-war era um, where, you know, the, the good guys uh, after, you know, World War II, uh, depending on where you were, were more or less, I mean, clear. Um, but now we're in an age of ambiguity and, and um even our heroes um, are in a sort of ambiguous moral state. So that that's, and that I think when I look at these films um, and the influence that that had on what I think are the most important cowboy um, Western films um, that came along, starting with Sergio Leone, we see that ambivalence, that, that shift of tone, we can see it actually in, in Hollywood as well from, you know, the, the films of um, John Ford, uh, you know, and John Wayne um, to the this now very different um, universe where Sergio Leone and 
Clint Eastwood uh, inhabit those roles. Yes, uh, and you mentioned Wasteland. It is worthwhile pointing out that uh, Mifune's character identifies himself. His actual name in the movie is Kwambate Taki Sanjuro. And the first part of that, Kwambate Taki, means mulberry field. Uh, So it basically means his name that he identifies himself is the 33 year, the 30 year old uh, from the mulberry field, Uh, which is sort of like a waste. It's equivalent to uh, a wasteland in the sense that it has no, no, uh, it's a smooth space that has uh, no defining the landmarks from which to orient oneself. Um, it's just a field. Um, and I think that is very, very interesting, uh, that he identifies himself with this undifferentiated space, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, like undifferentiated means there's a, it's a, like what, what parses up space, uh, philosophically? Well, like, you know, it's a system of uh, measurement, usually rati- well, first ratified by a church, or uh, and then second ratified by a state. Uh, at least speaking historically, that's how it progressed in the Western tradition. Like, essentially, uh, from uh, the Roman period through to today, uh, like our system of like mathematics came from the church uh, or churches. Uh, And then uh, system of measurement is in the modern era uh, comes from the government Um, like you and I. Well, you're um, because we're in different countries, we often use uh, different systems of measurement. And I think that's uh, and Sanjuro comes from a place uh, where there is no where it's undifferentiated by a system of government, it's right. a, uh, and uh, measurement, and then and then you get something. I think more inter like also interesting, uh, maybe not more interesting. Where it's like if you take away a system of measurement to parse up space, and you put in the implication that uh, space. Uh, individuates people or individuates entities through using systems of measurement, uh, then you have an entity that is essentially not yet individuated. It's coming, he, uh, as uh, Sanjuro is coming from a blank space. It means he is in, in himself sort of a cipher, living in an ambiguity, living as an ambiguity. Uh, And this is why he has uh, such shifting allegiances. Um, You know, like in this movie, at one time he's siding with one one group, at the other time he's siding with another group. Uh, That's right. And at no time... Neither of these groups are... are uh, particularly admirable. They're pretty lousy people in general. Um, living under this constant conflict where 
And it's interesting that you mentioned the, the notion of space because um, for things like the original cadastral um, land systems that you and I are used to, um, space is defined by power. So the power of the Lord to be able to manage an estate, um, the power of the sovereign to be able to seize uh, a, a, you know, a nation. Um, uh, and that's you know, played out in, um, in this whole, uh, um, in, in, in this town, uh, in the, um, feud that's going on, uh, among the, I guess it's the Ushatoras and the, and is it Sabai? Um, I forget the name of the other group. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah Sabai was the other one. Yes. Okay. So, um, and these, that's what it is. So that, and, and then, and neither of them is very powerful. So as you mentioned, this is a very, there's a lot of humor in this film, uh, that does a lot to diminish, uh, the importance or to, you know, to parody, um, this conflict of power, um, and violence over, you know, the, a crappy little town, uh, which doesn't seem to have much going for. Yeah. Yeah, like, well, or it's a town that is definitely at its nadir. Like uh, a lot, a lot had been going for it, but it had been uh, completely diminished by the opposition of these two uh, teapot despots, you know, right? you know, like, yeah, and their conflict. Uh, and then, yeah, that's uh, like now. So, it, so go ahead. Kurosawa does play it for laughs at that first confrontation, right, when he gets them. He pits them against each other, and there's going to be this big, you know, the equivalent of a shootout with swords um, in the middle of the the town, and it's just ridiculous, you know, because they neither of them will attack the other. They're all they're they're you know inching up to each other with the swords drawn, and there's great music, by the way. This has a tremendously um, captivating score um, and excellent um, film. Uh, cinematography as well but it, it it comes across as as silly and ridiculous and and our hero you know sanjuro as much as he's a hero um he he sees the pointlessness and meaningless of it meaninglessness of it and you know does what he can with it in terms of getting some sort of a living finding some money yeah uh he's he's not really a hero in the sense that he's not adhering to any moral code uh he's simply a profiteer right um you know like he's like a samurai a proper samurai um does adhere to a very strict moral code but a ronin a samurai without a master uh, in so simply because that samurai is without a master means that they are without a moral code. Uh, they are following no no set of transcendent orders. They are right. like they are strictly profiteers with um, a unique skill set, <laughs> if you yeah. will. Um, the, but that's I, interesting. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. No, no, go talk. There's, there's an interesting evolution that occurs that I think contains a really, um, uh, you know, fruitful message. So I think that we can view the, the moral metaphysical landscape of 
both of these films as being uh, a world with no God, a world with no um, objective morality, uh, where factions fight factions and um, all that matters is, you know, their sort of their power that they have and, um, you know, a sort of Nietzschean view of of postmodern, the postmodern world. Um, and and yet something happens to these characters. And I thought maybe I'm maybe I'm projecting too much on it, but um, there is a there is an event in 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 Yojimbo that makes us think that Mifune's characters, uh, Sanjuro, um, is also guided by some sort of inner morality. Uh, which event are you referring to? The um, freeing of the woman who has been captured by the family um, or as part of the payment of the debt. So there was a, one, of, one of the farmer's uh, wives was taken to repay a debt um, and held by, by this, I think it was Sanbei actually who had, him, had her, um, but I could be wrong. Um, Sebei, I'm sorry. Um, and there is this thing he does totally. So he has pretended to go, I'm trying to remember the scene. It's been a while since I saw it now. Uh, um, we had a bit of a hiatus. So he pretended to go, um, right. He pretended that something was happening that was going to, um, uh, threaten, uh, I think it was Sebe. And then he, he frees the woman and tells her to run to her husband and then tells them both to leave town. Do you recall that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So he had no reason to do that. There was no payment from that farmer. There was no promise of payment. And I think this was the only time where he acts uh, according to some some other duty, some duty that seems to be to some truth or to some good um that that i think either marks a shift in his in his way of thinking or you know reveals something that was he was just not acting upon until then i i agree with you that there was an event um i'm just going to put it slightly later in the movie uh okay. shift um, okay and it, i think what you'd uh, what you just uh, specified what is actually the proximate cause to uh, what I'm referring to. I'm referring to when he basically got himself killed um, uh, shortly after that, um, after, you know, and then he had, hides out in the mine and he recuperates for some time. And then he comes back into the town and uh, does what samurais do. Uh, right. Uh, to be and like the reason I'm putting it here is uh, because uh, at his uh, his base his almost death um, and imprisonment uh, where, by that really that monstrously ginormous guy <laughs> um, yeah yeah like his hand basically can cover Who almost him. kills him yeah right yeah. that's where I put the shift because okay. And the only and the reason for this is because when he tells the farmer's wife and the farmer and the kid uh, to get out of town, he's very contemptuous of them. Well, 
he's contemptuous of everybody in that town in that town i mean they're they're contemptible sure so i mean they've all been feuding with and again um you know gambling and they're just they're not they're not very admirable people in general except you know no i can't think of one who is very admirable well but, but still like to me like you know like uh that contempt that he expresses towards the farmer, the wife, who was basically uh, forced into sex slavery, right. uh, and the child who just wanted his mom back, the contempt he shows towards them uh, in getting them out of town, I think, uh, undermines the claim that he was operating from some higher moral uh, position. Uh, okay. That could be like, and then like, why does he do that? Why does he bother? I think he's, I think a huge risk, risk. I, I think he was in at this point, um, it was an opportunity to get them out of town. Uh, that just occurred. And in rest, like, okay. Rescuing the female, the, prostitute the woman forced into sex slavery um, allowed him to diminish the forces of the opposition uh, well he had to execute though yeah so he executed six of the guards right under the guise that somehow some and that that was in or and and he took advantage of that to fool um I think it was Sebe into thinking that some huge mob of the other team, right, had done this because no single person could have done that, right? Right, and that, yeah, that I mean, he, he did take advantage of it. Yes, and yeah, clearly, like, and then he like did the whole stage setting of basically destroying the place. Then he gets then the the mother, the farmer, and the child. The farmer is immediately so, so thankful uh, to Mifune's character for getting, uh, for liberating the wife. And uh, Mifune's absolutely contemptuous to them. He's like, I don't want your thanks. Just please F off and F off fast. Like, get out of here. Like, he treats them contemptuously uh, with, I didn't see this. This is not how... This wasn't admirable treatment of victims, uh, you know, and um, and then it was after that that basically there was word that something was amiss and they come in, interrogate him. They find yeah. the note from the farmer, the note thanking him. And that's when Mifune gets beaten, essentially, within an inch of his life, has to get smuggled out of town in a casket yeah, yeah you can't even say there's the image that he is literally dead uh right. he's inhabiting the same space as a dead person and then he and then in the cave or in the mine he gets reborn and i and i say that is the true transition of the character okay, okay. um and then he comes back uh, and, uh, like for me, the question is why would he come back? You know, like, um, 
Yeah, at this point, he's not going to get paid. <laughs> yeah, like so, you like know, he's set on a on a path to basically to decimate the entire town. Right, like he came back to set things right in accordance with a higher moral code that he is asserting in the right. final actions in the final scenes of the movie or in the final act of the movie. Um, I I say that. And what was motivating that, a transformation, a rebirth that occurred after he had essentially been killed. Um, he was born as an individual who is now uh, the expression of a moral code. Right. Uh, it's not just mere money. I think you're absolutely right. It's He's not coming back for mere money and he's not coming back for revenge because uh, I don't think there was there was a pretty good chance that he wasn't going to succeed. Right. <laughs> it was a suicide mission to go back. Yeah, um, literally. And he does. And then we see an ending very much like in Ghost Dog, where basically he has to die to stay mm-hmm. true to this code. Mm-hmm. So uh, only after pretty much the whole town has been wiped out, uh, right. and that and that's his doing too. I think he's 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 now sacrificing the whole town um, because yeah, none of these people are redeemable. Yeah, um, and also uh, not only it's not only none of these people are redeemable. Like, and this is just like. Uh, who was it? Was it Clastres who wrote uh, Society Against the State or Society versus the State? Uh, I think it was Clastres. Um, and he has this no. Clastres has this notion that the inception of the state, there has always been the state and then there have always been uh, forces opposed to the state. Uh, nomads essentially and these two entities uh, are timeless Uh, they have been there since the dawn of recorded time and even prehistory and the idea here is the nomadic entities the anti-state groups their whole mission is just to avoid the regulation and to, of the state and to diminish it. And Mifun's character, I think when he goes back into the city or back into the town to, decim- to destroy it, essentially, he's essentially destroying the state. Right. Uh, like yeah. all, all forms of state organization. He is just the force who is opposed to organization. Um, that's all he is. Uh, okay, that, that, that makes sense to me. Um, and another thing that bolsters that, uh, again, is that, you know, at some point, the actual state, right, the administrator for the region comes to visit town. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and everybody has to act all nice and, um, you know, like they're not fighting. Otherwise, they're going to be in trouble because then the, you know, the, the, the law, the power will be visited to the town. So, yeah, um, there is no order. The the absence of order, um, it has, you know, two outcomes. One is the imposition of order from the state and the other is, uh, you know, the imposition of order from these other powers, including um, Mifune's character, um, at, who 
basically has to, and he, he he's, and he, he jokes at the end, you know, things are going to be quiet in this town from now on, he says, which is, you know, dark and funny because <laughs> no left. It basically, uh, he's dead. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be quiet, like at the end of a Shakespearean tragedy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I thought that was a, uh, Really, a dark cut to joke, which was interesting. <laughs> yeah, really uh, and and Mifuni plays it so deadpan. Yeah, um, and I think inspires our our other film uh, that performance by Eastwood um, quite a lot. Yeah, so let's move to let's move to uh, Fistful of Dollars. Sure. Uh, yeah. So you know, I as I admitted before, I'm a big fan of westerns, and you know, I. I think I've seen all the big ones um, um, and lots of little ones. I grew up on a in in the country, and my dad had horses, and we used to you know enjoy riding and watching cowboy films. Um, so uh, Sergio Leone um, is an Italian director who I think really, as I mentioned before, changes the whole nature of Western movies. And I think by recognizing in it, perhaps inspired by um, Kurosawa's film, that there is this theme of moral ambiguity that, you know, the Westerns of um, uh, Ford and others um, had suppressed or inhibited or never recognized properly. Um, because, you know, this notion of the wasteland, the, the, the place between um, civilization and and elsewhere um, uh, invites it, right? Invites this this idea that you know uh, we are left to our own devices to try to um, I, I define the good or to create the good. Um, and this is a you know this is a big postmodern theme in general in philosophy, um, which I think Fistful of Dollars and all the Dollars films, um, and then pretty much every Western after um, picks up on. Um, and Eastwood, as I said, he, I think he's doing the sort of Mifune deadpan. Um, but again, at, with, with a fair amount of humor, but not as much, I'd say, uh, especially the mule story in the beginning. Um, and, and creates this character that is, I think, uh, you know, iconic now. Um, and, um, I think, um, it's a, it's a fantastic film. Sergio Leone uh, is a, is a, accomplished director of a number of other films and you know that sort of go off from the same theme um but this this really is just your jimbo told in in cowboy hats yeah and ponchos and ponchos i have to love the poncho because that is a you know that's actually a an important innovation the what do cowboys wear in all their you know um western films up until fistful of dollars yeah, the uh, is it is it blue jeans and uh, blue jeans and a duster, maybe a vest. Yeah, you know, yeah. for him to be wearing uh, a uh, a poncho, um, which apparently is something that um, Eastwood came up with during the filming, um, actually makes a huge statement about what what the what this character is because um, where does this film take place? It takes place. Um, on the, in the borderlands again, um, the, the, just across the border from 
Texas, I suppose. Um, and, um, you know, there is this, uh, again, an ambiguity, not just of, of the morality of the man with no name, who also goes by Joe, right? Somebody calls him Joe, the, the coffin maker. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the fact that he's now wearing the usual duster and, um, it says something about who this guy is. He, he drifts between the, the, um, these countries and these, again, it's similar. There's a, there are two teams at it, the Baxters who are obviously gringos living in Mexico. Um, and, um, the Rubios, I think. Yes. Uh, or the Rojos. Rojos. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the red, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it, well, it's interesting that you said Rubio uh, uh, as, a, as a potential enemy. I, I don't think you're wrong, <laughs> wrong there. Um, well, Rubio is another, yeah, that's another Yeah, another yeah that's thing. a whole other conversation that maybe uh, <laughs> has no place in this podcast, but um, a lecture could be donated, uh, done about that in a different class. <laughs> anyway, uh, yes. But, but actually, the fact that they're reds is also, I think, significant. Oh, right. But I think that had a radically different meaning. Uh, like now, when we think of Reds, we think of Republicans. When this movie was made, when we think it was of, the commies, it was the commies. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. I yeah. think that that's significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, just a um, few things. OK, the poncho thing. Yeah, that is unique um, to me. Like I did watch these movies. um most recently with uh i watched it with yojimbo and first yojimbo and then uh fistful of dollars uh and to me the poncho just read as the closest western equivalent to uh samurai garb okay yeah, yeah. like you know uh uh basically something you wear on your upper bot your torso uh which conceals your hands uh which was key what was going on in um uh, Yojimbo. So, but that was just how I read it. I don't, uh, or how could I, be. yeah, yeah, could be. yeah. Um, other things I did think, you know, uh, the role of Marisol, uh, Marianne Koch, uh, or Coke, okay, so, right? Yeah, Marisol, uh, she was, and this might be because I'm more familiar with Western culture. Uh, she seemed to be much more sympathetic, whereas um, the Japanese equivalent uh, was, it was harder to get to that she was a victim. And I think this plays into your narrative, uh, your narrative about uh, the man with no name or the samurai character being a hero. It was much more obvious to me uh, in uh, Fistful of Dollars that Clint Eastwood was trying uh, – Clint Eastwood's character, the man with no name, was effectively moved by uh, the plight of Marianne Coke. Um, yeah. And, you know, like that was – and like, like right from the opening scene where it's like – She's staring out of the window at him plaintively behind the bars, you know, to a Western audience. This uh, resonated very clearly that there was something going on there. Um, you know, 
she was a victim. Yeah, yeah, he is. So I think that Easter uh, Eastwood makes his character a lot more sympathetic in general. Um, so although he's interested in money, he um, I think he he also is interested in people um, more more clearly uh, than the Mifune character is in in Yojimbo. He he demonstrates more humanity to people like the the innkeeper and others, the coffin man. Um, then I then I saw Mifune, and and again when he lets the exact same uh, story basically. So when he saves the woman um, Marisol um, and sends them away, he isn't as uh, mean about it. Although he does say, "Get the hell out of here!" I think uh, something like that. Um, yeah. He he doesn't. He doesn't come across as, as, you know, contemptuous. Right. Like there is that whole um, because I think the morality had been set. Uh, the moral plight had been set out really from the opening shots of the movie. Uh, right. where, like, you know, you see literally uh, Marion Koch's uh, character, Marisol, is staring out from the window behind the bars, you know, and it's like, OK, you know, she's a victim, you know, like. She's an imprisoned, she's an imprisoned woman. Uh, And uh, this is uh, established very early on. So even though the lines when Eastwood's character does send them away are similar, they're played to different effect because of opening shots in the movie, uh, I suggest. And then there's also... I wonder if we want to draw a distinction between, even though they are the same, basically the same story, I wonder if you want to um, draw a distinction between how uh, Mifune's character, Mifune's character, what they're doing and what Clint Eastwood's character is doing, like just the implications. Uh, What I'm seeing here, or I thought, is like we must remember the samurai uh feudal order was a feudal organization it was a feudal order that involved horrible repression of entire cult of entire domains and all people in it it was an authoritarian it was authoritarian it was feudal i'm not going to say it was fascist because there was no business involved uh, mm-hmm. but it was it was horrible like it wasn't we got to we must really be careful not to romanticize it in any way uh it was a culture of slaveholders right. uh, and that I think is an well known to um, anybody who's watching Yojimbo in Japan, uh, right. you know, and that Yojimbo is on the outs with this culture. It is a Ronin, I think, is okay, potentially heroic, but very ambiguous. Clinton yeah. is not. Uh, on the outs, like his character is not on the outs with an, a horribly repressive form of social organization. Like he literally, he doesn't come into this wearing uh, 
the garb of uh oh i don't know uh King confederate soldiers or anything like yeah, that yeah right? like that yeah like whatever uh yeah. like so he is more of a blank slate and then and then how does clint eastwood play for like his playing for laughs i think he might be operating as a sort of trickster uh throughout this movie like yeah he he you know he, there's like bugs bunny mo- moments in this film yeah. um that you know again we're we're kind we're kind of laughing at the two teams that he's pitted against each other um uh, even right down to the you know the the final reveal right uh, at the end um and yeah, he is the kind of trickster. I like that 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 way of describing it. Yeah, Bugs Bunny, uh, also uh, Hermes, also yeah. uh, the crow or the raven uh, in indigenous cultures. Mm, okay, like uh, it goes like 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 that like the these all in each case that I just mentioned highly. Uh, highly intelligent entities that are beholden to no one uh, and beholden to nothing. Uh, Like the trickster was the crow. Uh, This was uh, a major God uh, that was always sort of one step ahead of humanity and all, and also, uh, not clearly expressing the will of the gods, like he changed the message the crow did, um, much like Hermes. Hermes wasn't uh, clearly beholden. He wasn't simply a messenger boy of Zeus. Uh, This is uh, a mistake that is not clear in in the mythology he is actually more of a figure the herm which is based on hermes mm-hmm. is a boundary marker of ancient of ancient greece huh. uh, it, he's he's a household god that is a used to establish the boundaries huh. he is a god of the peripheries right uh, like you said the borders right the borderland and the wasteland without any boundaries yeah is yeah. open to that sort of um yeah. setting of and bounds by people like him yeah. fascinating yeah. yeah he is the god that instantiates the border uh he is the expression of the border he's expression of the marginalia so that's uh, really important here he's yeah he does take this stand um, for Maris, Marisol and the husband, uh, I think partly because he, he's attracted to her, obviously. Um, that comes across in the very first scene. But also, he must have some sympathy for the boy. Um, and he mentions something about that, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think he, I forget the exact line, but he does. Yes. He, he may have been in a similar situation with his mother at some point. That's what I got out of it. Um, and so he felt some sympathy for them. Yeah. And if you want to take this uh, whole notion of the man with no name being an expression of Hermes, 
or the trickster, uh, it's perhaps worthwhile to uh, remember what uh, what uh, Hermes, the god Hermes's staff was. It was a caduceus. Okay, yeah. And uh, what was Hermes? Another like an inter two snakes intertwined around a rod. And this is so Hermes literally was the god who had one foot in life and one foot in death. Mm-hmm. Uh, who tra- who transgressed yeah. and passed freely between the boundary of life and death. Wonderful. Um, so uh, that's again this is so the same thing happens to uh Eastwood's character. He's almost he's beaten to a pulp and almost dead again. Right. Uh, ends up going through this he basically he's dead in the coffin he's taken to the cave um and is reborn so that's a fascinating insight i'm grateful for that thank you yeah and he comes back from death with sacred knowledge right uh like he he comes back with the okay yeah and here's how i am going to flout the enemy with his big nasty gun i'm going to wear a suit of i'm going to wear the boilerplate over my heart and mm-hmm. uh, encourage, elicit them to try to kill me, uh, knowing that I will, that based on this sacred knowledge, I'm going to live. Right. Uh, and, and it arises, he literally gets up, rises from the dead. He's invincible. He is this um, right. sort of justice from beyond the grave. Right. Yeah. It's cool. Like, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's interesting. I'm reading, uh, have you ever read the, do you like comic books at all? Yeah, 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 a lot. <laughs> okay, I'm reading Injustice. Have you read that series? No, I have not. I recommend it highly. Um, um, it c- considers a, a a sort of alternate future where Superman becomes a fascist dictator. It's a fantastic series. I'm reading it with my boy, uh, my son, uh, and Hermes plays a role in this. So I now I have a little more depth to bring to that. <laughs> when I read it with my boy, uh-huh. but yeah, I really like that idea. So this this um, character is, uh, yeah, he transcends the borders. He transcends um, um, our, you know, our sort of mortal uh, um, disputes and settles things um, by basically um, uh, fooling death. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Uh, Agamben talks about it a bit, but Agamben talks about a lot of things and most of them not. Lately, he's been getting really weird. Uh, but uh, his uh, first, the first book of the Homo, Homo, Homo Soccer series uh, mentions some of this stuff, so it's not entirely original. Uh, okay. To to be fair, um, I didn't come up with this alone. Uh, yeah, um, well, I really appreciate that interpretation, and yeah. I do think this character and that and that um, you know what it lends to the Western is historically and culturally significant because we can't go back. The you can't make a Western. I mean, I, I I'm sure you've seen Deadwood the series. Uh, actually, I haven't. I, I know oh, of. Okay. Yeah, like because after after seeing these Sergio Leone westerns, it's like okay, this is basically as good as it gets. Everything. Yeah. 
everything. But I'm, I'm still a sucker. I have to consume them. Um, and yeah, all of them owe everything to this Italian director's interpretation of the American quintessential art form of the Western. And it's wonderful. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I really, I, I enjoyed watching them again. I, I love, I, I, you know, I raised it. So I, and I, I, I do this weekly with you, not because of the great number of, you know, listeners or, although I appreciate all our fans, nor for the fortune it brings us and money, because I love to watch films. And this is a, this is a treat for me. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Um yeah, and yeah, Leone uh, making a spaghetti western uh, with, uh, well, the music was uh, done by Morcon, which was amazing. And then it was shot in Spain uh, yeah. to represent uh, Mexico and the United States' border. I just think that's brilliant and how it changed uh, what is essentially a Western, uh, uh, an American style of filmmaking. Like there aren't any Westerns that came out of Europe. Uh, the French weren't making Westerns. Um, you know, they were consuming, um, them and they were consuming mobster films as we know. Mm -hmm. But like, this is, uh, I think here is Sergio Leone modifying what I believe is, uh, perhaps the first, uh, a quintessentially American contribution to cinema. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, uh, I, I totally agree. Yeah, and that, that's awesome. Uh, he, quite an accomplishment. Um, all of Leone is great. I wouldn't mind watching more of him again. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. Um, so, um, given these two movies, uh, what was uh, your favorite moment uh, in the films or uh, what's uh, and is our least favorite moment so uh, my my favorite moment from Yojimbo is is the you know the almost battle of the two armies near the beginning because it's just hilarious watching these idiots go at each other with swords and you know completely unable to engage in any actual warfare um, with with Mifune looking on from above um, that's a, that's a brilliant moment. Um, and in fistful of dollars, of course, the, the, you know, the iconic, uh, gun battle, which, um, screws with the, uh, the, um, the Western tradition, right. Of the fastest of, on the draw, because, um, he doesn't play that game, you know, <laughs> he, he's, he totally, destroys it's Ramon I think right who's shooting at him with the rifle who he's claimed he's you know anybody with a rifle will beat anybody with a pistol well, yeah Eastwood is you know does a big giant raspberry pulls his big Bugs Bunny trickster trick yeah. and uh, wins by making the guy um you know waste all his bullets which is fantastic yeah right he, he totally subverts that it's like who's yeah. the to the draw it doesn't matter uh, exactly. yeah and i agree with you uh, on the on um you know jimbo that uh that uh pseudo battle uh, between these 
two groups of fools uh, was just like, oh, my, oh, my, you know, like it was it really took on uh, performance art. Yeah. <laughs> and it was great. Uh, I thought that was uh, just lovely. Uh, my favorite moment from uh, Fistful of Dollars was um, the introduction of the character. Clint Eastwood's uh, the first moments in this film where it's like the Morricone music is, is playing and the camera's on uh, Clint Eastwood. And it's just like, oh, my, this is oh, my, this is something you know you're watching a character who will yeah. last forever. You know, yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, the cinematography in Fistful of Dollars is better. Um yeah. In general, um, it's a little more advanced, and and yeah, the the framing of that shot is fantastic. Yeah, and the wide open of it of it all is uh, more is better expressed in uh, well, I guess it's the desert outside of Almeria, Spain, than it was by Japan. Uh, right. You know, yeah. So it was a uh, great, uh, yeah. Both uh, as far as like things I'd take out of either movie, uh, I, I'm. I'm not going to be that guy. They were great. You know, like, yeah, no, uh, everything that was in both movies should have stayed in both movies. As far as I'm concerned. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so is it my turn to recommend here? It is. I'm excited. All right. Well, I'm going to stick with Kurosawa okay. and I'm going to go with high and low from 1963. <laughs> One I haven't seen. Great. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, well, uh, Scorsese, I think, refers to it as his favorite crime film, uh, or perhaps, or if, it, if it's not Scorsese, it's generally regarded as one of the great crime films ever made. So, okay. and it stars Mifun again. So, um, yeah, well, I, I should make sure how to pronounce his name. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll get that right by next time. Yes. And if I, if I butchered it this time, I'm really sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, Thank you. Rob. I'm looking forward to that. And once again, thanks to everybody who does tune in. Um, and we do appreciate any thoughts or contributions you might have. I suppose we might take requests at some point. Um, yeah. uh, we have a pretty sizable group on Facebook and everybody's welcome to join. Yeah, like you know, uh, I'm not I'm not opposed to that at all. Um, yeah, maybe uh, we should set up like a poll of uh, on that group of somehow like yep. yeah, something like that. We can do that. Yeah. Let's think about that and yeah, and uh, discuss it. 